Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Hey friends, this is the second of two episodes with Dr. Marie Garlock discussing the role of performance and storytelling in health and environmental justice movements. My conversation with Marie was so rich and expansive that I divided it into two distinct episodes. If you haven't already, then I encourage you to go back and listen to the previous episode, number 91, in which we talk about what health justice means more broadly and about the first of three projects that she's working on, titled Flipping Cancer. Flipping Cancer is focused on people who face advanced cancers as patients, caregivers, and healthcare providers. In this episode, we discuss The Lilies Project, an environmental justice project in Stokes County, North Carolina, in the United States, and the Burns Human Rights and Capabilities Project in Malawi, Africa. All three of these projects fall under the umbrella of health justice and performative story collaborations, and they all include a number of partners and contributors, which is a staple of Marie's work. You'll see links to everything in the show notes. At the conclusion of this conversation, I asked Marie for tips to share with artists who'd like to do this kind of work but don't know where to start. And she answered that question with the same grace, humor, and compassion that you'll hear throughout our conversation. I'll read a short bio for Marie and remind you that this can be challenging content. We touch on rampant injustice and inequities, life-threatening illnesses, racism, and other traumas. So listen when you feel able. Marie Garlock, Ph.D., leads health, performance, collaborative research, and community-building initiatives that span the U.S. South and Global South. Marie is the director of It Is In You Projects and is based in Durham, North Carolina. It Is In You partners with people and organizations drawn together by the power of stories to promote health justice, including clinicians, artists, scientists, educators, policymakers, faith and advocacy leaders across diverse communities, institutions, and coalitions. For over a decade now, Marie Garlock has been creating performances based on collaborative community-embedded research. She works with learners and luminaries of all demographics to facilitate workshops, organize festivals, and offer tailored programs in creative communication and health equity across the U.S. and internationally. Enjoy the episode. I want to move on because we could talk about this endlessly and there's so much here. But you mentioned coal ash. So Mm -hmm. let's pivot to the Lilies Project in Stokes County, North Carolina, because Mm -hmm. that is a component of this story. Mm -hmm. Speaking of stories, right? Could you tell us a little bit about that? In Stokes County, there are people who have an incredible legacy, actually through artful forms of expression of, I've I've really come to understand it as um, seeking to transmute the toxicity of racism and classism in the U.S. South that is many centuries 
long. Um, and in this one place in Stokes County, um, it's Walnut Cove is, is the official town. And then there's an historically underbounded, not annexed majority black neighborhood, Walnut Tree, that after 46 years of advocacy with help from the UNC Center for Civil Rights in the law school, got annexed in finally to have clean water piped. You know, the bills for undrinkable water were double what the people in the town were paying. Just this is a pattern all over the country, actually, of undrinkable water in majority black and brown neighborhoods that are not annexed into a town with more expensive bills even for undrinkable water. So because of that situation, there was this confluence of ugly things that brought about incredible advocacy toward environmental justice, which I see as one big component of health justice. So with flipping cancer, we talked about healthcare justice mainly, and then environmental justice is this notion that we need to undo the default ways that racism works and undo the default ways that classism works such that way disproportionately to actual numbers and representation of our entire population, it's low and middle, but mainly low income neighborhoods and districts are the sites for industrial pollution, whether it's waste storage or big companies that are coming to, you know, process petrochemical and pesticide and plastics and um, things like coal ash waste and fracking, drilling, things like that. Aluminum smelting, a colleague, uh, Pavitra Vasudevan, did amazing work with this play in Baden, North Carolina, created with um, residents there who really dealt with the toxicity of the Alcoa aluminum smelting plant mm. for a long time. And um, Pavi partnered with the NC Environmental Justice Network to bring this to life with residents in Baden. Um, so in that legacy of environmental justice storytelling that Pavi, Naima Muhammad, and others with NC Environmental Justice Network have really infused <laughs> with their wisdoms and strong energy, the, the Stokes County community was dealing with four decades of coal ash waste from Duke Energy's Blues Creek Steam Station. And I knew only some about that, actually, but was at die-in and mobilization, symbolic die-in around healthcare access at the NC General Assembly in 2015. And I asked Laurel Ashton, who was then a field secretary, our very radical NAACP that's so much more... (laughs) open and active than like most histories of, of NAACP chapters. And I asked Laurel, well, I've been doing interviews with people who are physicians, family caregivers, patients, current and former who become health justice activists because they faced cancer. And they're participating in these performance rituals in events that center their stories and in longer term social movements because of facing cancer in healthcare settings. So who else should I interview? She's like, come to Walnut Cove with me next week. Mm. (laughs) There are so many people there who are facing cancers and a ton of other health issues because of coal ash waste. So in this first engagement (laughs) with the hard-earned wisdoms and the bountiful and artful modes of sharing uh, their community's story and values in Stokes County, um, we went to what was a sing-in and ritual walkout from the town council. Because not only have there been four decades of coal ash waste that polluted people's water, the groundwater tables, their air, for many decades up through the late 1990s, coal ash would rain down on homes. It would chip off paint from cars, 
discolored roofs. And again and again and again, when people were worried, this doesn't seem good if it's chipping the paint off my cars. The misinformation campaigns from Duke Energy and local officials that were getting various kickbacks and state officials as well. You know, oh no, it's safe. I mean, you could, some Duke Energy officials have said, you could eat it like cereal. Right. <laughs> right. Of course, yes. Um, so at the same time as all of these illnesses, you know, cancers, heart, lung, brain, birth defect, health issues, and things that are like actually more ambiguous and hard to name than cancers. And so cancer becomes the hook because many people are, you know, do have brain tumors and lung tumors and bladder and breast and um, stomach from children through elders. That is sort of the way that people understand how these toxins show up in people's bodies, in their water, in their air, and then also in their local politics. Mm. So because of the coal ash waste being located in what is not just the low income that the majority of polluting industries are, are put, but actually everywhere, the way disproportionate low income and people of color communities um, so black and brown, often African-American and other black diaspora and Latinx communities are way overrepresented in terms of how many polluting facilities are chosen to be put there. And so many people representing industry, the um, narrative they share is that, oh, the land was cheap because of the polluting facility. And so that's why people moved there. And it's this ahistorical inversion. Right. <laughs> Because people have been in so many of these communities, whether it's hog farming or coal ash waste or so many other forms of pollution that are imposed on them, they've been there for eight and ten generations in Stokes County, for example. And to have black land ownership after emancipation in the rural south is a feat. Right. And if it's the Rogers Road community with the landfill in Chapel Hill, same thing, 150 years of black land ownership. And that's where the landfill gets put. You know, so that pattern showing up over and over. Basically, the town um, that refused to annex the black neighborhood called the Walnut Tree, whereas they had annexed white town, white neighborhoods over time in those forty plus years, um, chose to do a fracking shale test right on the borderline of the black neighborhood, and no white residents or black residents of the town lived nearby that. But it was just over the line of the jurisdiction within the town. But the only people that would be affected were in the unannexed black uh, neighborhoods. Yes. I see. They were not told. So this is, again, power of, like, inf not just information, but what is the story of why this is happening and who is listened to as they share their narration of what's going on. People found out on the news or from their coworkers. They were not notified mm. as fracking drilling equipment is coming through their neighborhood and going down a driveway they made next to one of their neighbors' right. homes. On top of the fracking testing um, that was really revealing voting rights violations, ultimately, there is the, you know, fracking can, um, basically it's hundreds of chemicals, 200 of the 700 are known to be carcinogens. And you essentially, the fracking drilling goes into the shale far underneath the ground um, this was more surface and thus even more dangerous with these chemicals and blasts of water and essentially explodes the ground from within to extract out this misnomer of natural gas. There are huge methane leaks. The water is, you know, poisoned locally in almost every place. There are weird hormonal changes and birth defects already being seen in communities where fracking has been imposed. Often there's an imposition when people vote to not have fracking in their county or their town. 
state officials who are on the more extremist right, who normally are about local rights, Mm -hmm. will say, nope, we require at the state level that fracking can take place if the fracking companies want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that was being revealed. The fracking also, because of the nature of it, can cause tremors and many earthquakes. And the 19 million tons of coal ash waste I believe 12 million of that um, is in wet coal ash ponds. There's a dam to hold that in. Yeah, multiple billions of gallons, right? Similar in Kingston, Tennessee. I learned all in this one hearing showing up the first day Mm -hmm. because people there are telling their stories in this town hearing. Teenagers are coming up and sharing poetry they've written about it. You know, this, this whole space of a policy deliberation hearing was completely shifted to be a space of storytelling um, in the public comment, three-minute <laughs> story testifying iterations. Basically, there is this uh, place in Kingston, Tennessee, where the Tennessee Valley Authority, a dam burst in 2009, and this entire neighborhood was wiped out with coal ash sludge. And this is a dam that is not sturdy in uh, near the Blues Creek Steam Station. And if it broke, it would cause loss of life and property Um, most importantly, life. And there's really not a good emergency or evacuation plan in place. And it took multiple years of advocacy to even require by law that Duke Energy release its emergency evacuation plans Hmm. to the public who live nearby. So I'm going on about this, but basically that combines with, you know, this underbounding history, the fracking, the coal ash waste. And so state level Moral Mondays movement got involved and drew attention to how all these issues converge. And um, media from across the state and the country were at this small town hearing. And residents affected by coal ash waste for so long and dealing with cancers, strokes among women in their 30s, heart attacks among women in their 30s, um, often mothers who had been pregnant or um, had young children at the time that the coal ash plant was put in. And those kids grew up with the coal ash raining down on them and then the longer-term seepage into the groundwater table, they now are in their 40s and are showing a lot of the longer-term health effects of having grown up around this. So all of these folks are, like 130 people are in this one small town hall, and there is a mural of local Black civil rights luminaries painted up above this then all-white, far-right-leaning town council. Mm -hmm. Because it had been the Rosenwald School, actually, so this education liberation history in this building. Then it was the Black Community Center, and at some point was bought out by the town and is now the senior center. But as one interviewee, Ada Linster, said, you know, they charge us to use our own space. So to do a dance rehearsal in there for the kids in the neighborhood would be $75 per use. And it had felt like the Black community's space. So they're in that sacred space where this one line of five people Mm -hmm. (laughs) is legislating that the fracking test is going to happen in ways that could endanger everybody quite gravely and without consent of the people most affected. And so everyone rose up after these testimonies and sang for what felt like a good 10 minutes for our children, for our future, for our present, for black and white together, for our water, for our health, for our lives, uh, just like a tree planted by the water, we shall not be moved. We shall not be moved. And led this long ritual walkout <laughs> one by one, mm-hmm. showing the failure of legal representation and yet also the promise of 
we want to get you out of this position. <laughs> right, right. And then young people were outside who had said, oh, are you with the UIC, United in Christ, but also UIC, <laughs> praise and hip-hop dance team of black and white dancers age 8 to 21, um, said, we're for social justice. We're dancers. Can we dance for you on the way out? <laughs> and so this mass of people is walking out to these young people dancing to the song Glory from Selma. And that is an entry point into this long history that the Lilies Project as an Art Place America grant is there to really honor, to document, and to advance. Long way of saying. So in the Lilies Project, the most amazing work has happened in that lineage from Jester Hairston, Abolition, his grandmother's songs put into Hollywood compositions in the Lilies of the Fields film, for which Cindy Poitier won the first Academy Award as the first Black actor to win that award, uh, to school walkouts to deal with Jim Crow segregation, to then those young people leading um, these incredible movements uh, through storytelling in the arts, then being the elders in environmental justice movements in, in Stokes County. So there's a lot there to figure out how to draw the connections between. And so in the Lilies Project, led by Caroline Rutledge Armijo and a community cohort of advocates, artists, scientists, um, technologists, documentarians, our goal is to address collage through arts and parks and to create public space um, to center the stories and really illuminating practices of advocates for racial justice in this community through time. So Tracy Brown Edwards, who does this work because her mom, Annie Brown, passed away at 63 from a heart attack as a very slender fit woman, but mm -hmm. who had spent most of her life within just a couple of miles of the Blues Creek Steam Station and collage waste and emissions of um, production. Um, those emissions are actually 20% of the state's carbon emissions from this one plant. And the Sutton plant in Wilmington is another 20%. Huge contributors to local individual bodies, homes, workplaces, politics, and then much broader um, as well. And the wind patterns of that bring this pollution into multiple other states from our state where we have some of the least regulation mm. around coal ash production and waste storage. So South Carolina does a better job than us, as does Virginia. And Annie Brown was the real igniter of community energy and multiracial advocacy around coal ash waste before she died. And then now through Tracy, who also herself dealt with heart attacks and strokes in her 30s, neurological effects as a child, and has two kids herself. And they've all grown up within just, you know, two and a half-ish mm -hmm. miles of the steam station. Tracy Brown Edwards' mom, um, Annie, inspired Yara Allen, who is the theomusicologist of the Poor People's Campaign. She composed a song in Annie's honor, actually with Annie still in the room, about somebody's hurting my brother, my sister, our people, and we won't be silent anymore. And that song has been sung globally throughout the world mm. <laughs> um, in gatherings at the United Nations in front of the Pope. Reverend Barber and Yara Allen at an Ecological Justice Moral Monday uh, recently in Poor People's Campaign Gathering that had Vice President Al Gore and they all came and did this press conference in Stokes County together. Um, they told the story of that song and said, as people were singing that song, somebody's turning my brother, my sister, my children, my people, and we won't be silent anymore. People began to take their earbuds out that were translating the song at the Vatican and at the UN because they wanted to hear and they could understand mm. what that song 
was doing. Right. So Tracy as this liaison for the power of song who has sung so many amazing things on the state seal outside the General Assembly to the stage at HK on J in front of 80,000, 100,000 marchers in Raleigh um, to local organizing meetings with residents for coal ash cleanup. She'll sing, um, if you aren't going to help me, and then just don't stop me. Lord, help them go on and get out of my way. <laughs> Um, we collaborated to do this Holy Spirit story and song workshop as a part of the Celebrating Courage weekend in John L. Hairston's honor. And that very unlikely seeming outcome of the Black school being kept open and welcoming in white students rather than the other way around at the London School. And in celebrating the power that educators have in local people's lives um, through time, John L. and others, and in celebrating how do we keep ourselves sustained in advocacy environments, the role I collaborated with Tracy to do in this storytelling workshop was to have people listen to each other's stories and begin to discern and identify what makes a lot of sense in in Stokes County and many other places to call your spiritual strengths. Hmm. So what spiritual strengths do you bring to this? And having people listen to each other and affirm as they're each discerning through three-sentence stories or one that has worked in the Flipping Cancer Project, the Burns Project, and the Lilies Project is in this interplay method of what's called babbling, where two people speak with one another, but only one speaks at a time. And they're given a topic for 20, 30 seconds, and the other person's role is just to witness. They can have their facial expressions and noises, but it's not a verbal back-and-forth conversation. And we're not really encouraged to do that so much Mm. in much of U.S. society and life. Just listen for a block. One method I love to engage in facilitation is here's a made-up word, so schlambuffle or finbaz. <laughs> you decide if it's PH or F, right. you're the expert. <laughs> and you say, okay, you have 30 seconds to share. You're the world's preeminent expert given your experience in mm-hmm. you know, uh, being an oncology physician, given your experience in dealing with burn injuries, given your experience in um, living near coal ash waste. You're the world's preeminent expert in the phenomenon of finbis or finbes. <laughs> Whatever you have to say is right because you're the expert. Mm-hmm. And having people step into that role, which they actually already have, because who's the expert in something? The people who live it. Right, right. <laughs> and witness and affirm each other in that has been so powerful and potent to witness Mm -hmm. and helped us really discern as well um, some of the songs that have kept people going. We did a song and story round around what people hope to see for the remediation of coal ash and then uh, the spiritual strengths, the insights, and um, some verses of song that keep them going when times are hard. Try and create a soundtrack Mm. (laughs) of this local community's uh, change making for racial, environmental, and health justice. And in that process, people really got to see, oh, I'm not alone in some of the struggles I faced, nor are we just our pain mm-hmm. at all. We have so much <laughs> that other communities may have, but not as deeply, or that other communities may not even have. And not all of that is as a result of the pain, but some of it is interconnected uh, with how people seek out various practices of song and story and artistic expression to sustain themselves. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned before we got on mic that 
you experienced some things with the Lilies project that also kind of made sense to you in this final project that we're going to talk about, the Burns Human Rights and Capabilities in Malawi. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Mm-hmm. In the Burns project in Malawi, I think very briefly, because there's not time to discuss at length, this is essentially from an Africanist lens, meaning how do we center knowledge and wisdom of practitioners and leaders and people living particular circumstances on the African continent and have less of this development aid narrative that people in the U.S. might be quite used to right? when it comes to the global South and to include the African continent elsewhere. So the J.C. Burns program at UNC, um, as well as the AAAD program, which is African-African American Diaspora Studies and Dr. Yunus Saleh, um, really put together an incredible study abroad program for first generation and students of color and covenant scholars at UNC to be able to study for six weeks at only a couple thousand dollars for everything, housing, food, mm. to classes, flights, passport shots, everything down from 13 to four, I think. And in that process of co-learning, we also did a project around how, what are the social determinants of burn injuries and The storytelling forms in that case were used as a mode of conducting research and also giving something back to people who had shared their stories in focus groups and one-on-one interviews. Mm. What I learned in that process is I don't know how people who are social scientists and other scientists get by Mm. (laughs) without artists involved in their projects because it's very depleting, I think, especially for the participants who are sharing their stories of, in this case, trauma Mm -hmm. of burn injuries to, to just tell that story of pain and hurt. And there's something else about, not just in line of questioning, but about artistic practice and storytelling and movement workshops that helps us access the knowledge and the things that people who have faced burn injuries know that other people may never know in their entire lifetime. Again, that that fullness of experience that you're talking about. Right. And so we had young people participating who, because of economic deprivation, that, bear with me, listeners, (laughs) is actually connected to a history of the white supremacist social order. So the USCIA supported a dictatorship for 40 plus years and the ongoing ramifications of that in political systems in Malawi. The apartheid regime in South Africa, based on white supremacy, gave money also to this dictatorship that then imposed all of these very sort of demeaning practices for how women and men should interact. Because if you keep down an entire part, you know, more than half of your population, then you're much less likely to have people rise up. Right. People always continue to rise up, however, Mm -hmm. everywhere on the planet. (laughs) And so looking at that history of economic deprivation, how people's lives center around cooking fires low to the ground, but then without money, how some forms of family violence, whether it's a mother or a father to children um, between husband and wife um, or otherwise, basically fire is right nearby and ready. And just like in some parts of North Carolina and the rural South and hate crimes, Mm -hmm. you know, acid and other forms of burns are used as an expression of anger and violence. I struggle to tell a story without centering the voices <laughs> of um, the the narrators, actually. The idea that family violence is more in a global South 
third poorest country in the world is more violent than here in the U.S. is absurd, but sometimes people can take it out of context as we listen and try to position. So I'll just say, in the Global South, in the U.S. South, family violence happens in many ways, often exacerbated by poverty. As noted, the ways that the white supremacist social order influences how that poverty is exacerbated in Malawi, some of the forms of family violence take place um, through burning water or porridge or fire. And so wives, husbands, um, you know, spouses, children who had grown up um, after burn injuries came together, sometimes from 50 kilometers away, sometimes walking nine kilometers. The transportation um, was eventually provided, but people heard about it and came from all over mm-hmm. to these storytelling workshops with Masanko Banda, who is um, storyteller, artist, dancer, drummer, um, who focuses on conflict transformation and peace building. And he's worked in 36 countries, incorporates interplay forms into Malawian traditions, which which are his, uh, because he is from the Longwe Malawi, and then also um, works half time in Oakland, California, mm. and other places. So we got to collaborate in these storytelling workshops that we called Restoration of Self and Community. And people who experience burn injuries often um, feel very isolated because of the physical change and how their bodies present and are you know, visibly marked and harmed to others. And they also often have limited mobility because of the burn injury and the lack of healthcare access, which again is influenced by that structural defunding right. because of dictatorship supported by USCIA and apartheid regime um, and its after effects. So they're not pain medications and unfortunately not bandages, um, or affordable surgical response to burn injuries in a whole lot of places. So the healing process, of course, takes much longer and the damage through muscle and bone as well as skin is much deeper. That being said, people coming together in these workshops would connect with each other and share that they had never had a room just of people who had burn injuries. And they felt not alone for one of the first times in their lives, Mm. just through that act of gathering. But also through sharing, we really focused a lot on taking joy in their body selves. And so Masanko's drumming, his songs were um, Nda Kuona Moni. So um, the movement that goes with that is touching above one's eyes, then touching um, to the heart with one's hands, and then doing a clap that is a cupped clap. Mm-hmm. That is to show honor to others. And that means not just with my eyes, fellow human being, but with my heart, I see you. And to have people experience, who have experienced traumatic burn injuries and the physical difference visibly and mobility wise, and then economically too, that that means because of um, differences in ability to do different jobs and access different education and other institutions to have them say to each other and be the bearers of that knowledge, I see with my heart, not just mm-hmm. with my eyes, fellow human being, then meant that when we did this dance that was about finding your own space <laughs> in a circle around you, um, and uh, Michael Kayatza with the Center for Human Rights and Rehabilitation, they were our main partners, a respected Malawian organization where the idea of human rights is so much more radical mm-hmm. <laughs> than the U.S. Like it is everything. It is mm-hmm. the standard for justice and change um, in Malawi. He was translating and helping. Um, so Masanko would speak in Chichewa and then I would speak um, in English and then translate it to Chichewa. So we had ability for people of all 
lingual backgrounds to participate. We were doing this dance as individuals in a circle, but in Malawian tradition, especially in a group of women and young women, you don't just stay static. Mm. <laughs> so the what these uh, participants in the restoration of self and community workshop um, in Lalangwe and Salima Malawi taught us was they started immediately dancing in a circle as individuals and then around each other and an entire round. Mm. And what they named that was for them was blessing not only their own body selves in that space, but blessing each other and planting the seed for remembering that even when they're not physically in the same space, they're always going to remember that experience of being connected in solidarity, which we discussed as shared risk as you walk alongside mm. and deep connection for each other. And in some of the story forms as well as the movement, we did very playful back and forth things, um, but also speaking about things that people know they're great at and that they love about themselves and that other people thank them for. Mm. <laughs> and that opens the gate for then a story round about what do you know, first discussed one-on-one -on -one, and then kind of distilled to this story glimpse with a bit of movement as well that the whole group echoes. What do you know that other people do not? and may never know because you have faced burn injuries. That might then lead into what is the change you hope to see in terms of policy, culture, or otherwise, both to prevent future burn injuries, but also to offer support to people who already have burn injuries. And that um, sort of river story round, we would call it, is the only part that's audio recorded of the entire workshop. But that then is this, of course, informed by all the dance and song that has right. preceded it. Right. And those gems then from this river round are what's carried forward to Center for Human Rights and Rehabilitation for a future policy recommendations document. And because of Dr. Saleh, Michael Kayatza, Tim Mtambo, all of their connections with the Center for Human Rights and Rehabilitation that does deep level rural organizing, the plan for the next few years is to have that influence. Um, workshops, trainings, um, train the trainers is what participants asked for. They said, we want to be the peer educators of other people so we can take our experiences of, ex of burn injury and trauma and the silence that mm -hmm. has so long come with that, that we're able to break in this space and become the peer educators and liaisons for our community. So there's this immediate activation of like, I will carry this light forward. Right. I already named that for myself. <laughs> the participants did not need to be asked or have that suggested or anything. They're like, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> here's what we're taking from this. And here's what we expect from you. <laughs> I love that. So first of all, I want to thank you for all of these examples, which I do think helps people understand what is possible with this type of work that you do. So for the final question that I have is that if somebody is listening and they think, I'm an artist and I want to do this type of work, where would you suggest they start? I got a great recommendation from Jane Brown, who uh, started the Interdisciplinary Health Communication Initiative at UNC Chapel Hill. Joan Cates, an amazing mentor in community-generated health communication. Um, they said, make a Venn diagram of three things that you love thinking about and sort of musing with, <laughs> um, things that you're, you're, you have in your mind and on your heart and just sort of rumbling around inside of you when you're not required to. It's not for schoolwork. It's not for professional work. And then basically 
where those three things overlap, that's, that's your magic space of what to say yes to. So I think for Jane Brown, it was something like media and media literacy, uh, young people and gun violence. So the three things that intersected there were about youth media creation to combat gun violence, but also how gun violence is infused in so much media to which youth are exposed, you know, and you only say yes to projects that are the overlap of the three. And then you've also given yourself that chance to figure out, well, what really does drive me forward? Um, And so for me, it would be health, performing arts, so story movement, and then sort of visual symbol and ritual forms of performance, and some sense of spirit or spirituality. And depending on the context, I might call that community building. But essentially, what's what's bigger than all of us that moves through us, connects us, inspires us. And so advising others to find what makes, you know, their their heart rhythm strongest, most even and abiding, <laughs> not just fluttery of like, oh, I love that, <laughs> which you might burn out, <laughs> but actually like, what do you really love and where does that overlap? And then I would suggest the thing for artists who want to do this, forms of listening actually are the are the way to really dive into how do I honor other people's stories and where they connect to a larger framework that the art form I engage and try to share with the world can help be a channel or a conduit for bringing understanding to these misunderstood or hardly addressed or underrepresented experiences. And that comes from asking questions and being patient and trying to develop trust with a particular community of people that you want to partner with, but also figuring out some of what your connection is even when people are different than you. So figuring out for me that the reason I do so much advocacy through performing arts or education, partnerships and facilitation through the power of story to promote health justice is inspired by an ongoing way to connect with my mom, Barbara. And her role was so much around health justice advocacy and kind of that spirituality and how can I be of service to others was how I might describe what her spirituality was. It was like, God, please use me, (laughs) is what she would say. And then what I bring to that mix is uh, that love of health and of justice, but also the power of the arts and our moving human bodies, the physical movement language, as well as the verbal story. As you can tell, I'm sometimes lengthy and verbose. And so the, the balance of physical language and allowing every inch of your body to be a part of sharing a story or a tunnel into understanding something feels really important. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that might be another little snippet of learned (laughs) advising for artists is, is figuring out how you operate across multiple modes and when one might be more necessary than the other. Thank you so much. (laughs) And also believe in yourself and sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Other artists. (laughs) And find laughter. (laughs) Very important. And find incredible supporters such as Artist Soapbox. (laughs) 
<laughs> and mentors who believe in you. So not just my family lineage, but people who seem just, I mean, Baba Chuck Davis was my hero growing up. So to get to eventually partner with him and creating dance festival programming and then have him call in, you, you, and you, you're going to be apprentices in the dance company. I was like, but I can't. You clearly must not be me. Mm. <laughs> but allowing mentors to call you in, even when you think you're very much not worthy, but trying to let some of what they see in you emerge as well. That's excellent advice. Thank you, Marie. Hey, friends. I'm excited to announce that our second full-length audio drama is in development. The New Colossus is an original adaptation of Anton Chekhov's classic play, The Seagull. And it's gonna be amazing! We have a cast, we have a team, we have a script and recording days, and we are rolling! I'm asking you to support indie audio drama and artists. Please support the creation and production of this new work by becoming a patron of Artist Soapbox at patreon.com slash artistsoapbox. Patrons at the $3 a month level and up will also receive the inside scoop on our creative process, including interviews, secret documents, and more. That link again is patreon.com slash artistsoapbox, and I'll include it in the show notes. Your support makes a huge difference. Artist Soapbox has created nearly 100 hours of free content made available to listeners around the world. Please help us continue to make more. Thanks.